session with Dr. Farid Holaku. Good afternoon. Welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Trilakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number, 310-441-0555. I wanted to start the show today talking about two competing anxieties that I think we all as human beings face that we often aren't aware of, or at least aren't aware of one of them quite often because we try to avoid it, but that are in some ways in opposition with each other. And I think to lead and live a good life, we need to be aware of both and find a balance between them. So what are those two anxieties that I'm speaking of? So one is death anxiety, which is this fear of death, which can be accompanied by this fear of what happens after we die, which is unknown. We don't know for sure. Also, this is fear of how it's going to feel, what you experience. And there can be this fear or anxiety of what have I done with my life? And I really like uh, Irvin Yalom, who is a um, existential psychologist and has written some incredible books. Uh, he says in that book that he wrote with his wife most recently, A Matter of Death and Life, his wife Marilyn, he says that he believes that our death anxiety is correlated or essentially equal to our regrets in life, or essentially usually what we didn't do in our life. So the more we feel we have not lived our life to the fullest, we regret things that we have done, but mostly I think it's usually the regrets are things we have not done, we experience more death anxiety when it comes to facing death, something important to keep in mind. And most of us, most of the time, don't like to think of our own death. We know it's real. No one logically, if you ask them, thinks they're going to live forever. But we do act or live in a way at times as if we will live forever, that death is never going to happen to us. And this is why when a loved one dies or we hear a story of someone dying or we ourselves get close to death in some way, either we have a near-death type of experience, like we almost get into an accident, let's say, or a health scare, and we face our own mortality, that sometimes can be a very troubling experience for people because we're very often trying not to think of our death because it makes it easier to function in some ways. But as I'll talk about today, actually facing our death realistically can actually help us live a better life. By being more aware of death, we might live a better life. And so we tend to avoid this. We have this mindset that we can essentially live forever. Again, we wouldn't say that, but you notice that in how we do things or put things off. Well, I'll do this later when the time is right, or uh, right now is not a good time, but at some point in life I will do X. 
when usually there's not this time that's going to arrive that's going to make it easy or it's going to be put on a platter. You have to go and make it happen. We have to actually go and take action. But because we have this sense that we always will have time, there will always be more time, we don't feel any kind of urgency or any sense that we need to get to it. So that's death anxiety, and I'll get into that more in looking at this balance that I'll talk about today. But on the other hand, there's an anxiety about living life, so what I'd like to call a do anxiety. So there's a death anxiety and a do anxiety of what we do in our lives. And so when it comes to doing new things, trying something out, making a change in our lives, pushing ourselves out of our comfort zone, all of those things bring anxiety with them. And so because of that, we often don't want to do things or we don't try things. And so this can blend well with the avoidance of death, that there will always be some other time. And so because we have a do anxiety of being a little afraid to try something new, we tend to avoid things. And that's what anxiety does. It makes us avoid the thing that makes us anxious. If you have a phobia, one of the hallmark symptoms is that you avoid the thing that you're phobic to. So if it's, let's say, you have a fear of flying, you avoid flying at any cost. You have to go somewhere and you try to see, is there any way to get there without a plane? Because you avoid the thing that you have anxiety to or you're phobic of. And so in life, we see ourselves doing this where we are afraid to take chances, try something new because of that anxiety it creates. And it makes us want to just be. And so as biological beings, surviving is obviously very important. That's the first thing. We talk about surviving and reproducing, but surviving can feel like enough. And that's how a lot of people feel. They get comfortable in their lives, and there could be the sense that, well, I'm surviving, so why should I change it? That old adage of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And for some things that's very true, but when it comes to our lives, we are likely to realize that it's not broke, you're okay, you're doing fine, you're surviving, but you're not really living the life you want or living life the way that you would wish you did if you look back on it. Something I do with my clients at times is to ask them to imagine they're 80 or 90 years old and to look back at their life up until that point and what could they imagine they would possibly regret that they didn't do. Now, I do try to be careful because when we try to predict what we feel, I talked about this on Monday's show, we tend not to do well. So we think, if this happens, I would feel this way. If that happens, I would feel this way. So to be able to really predict what you would regret at 80 or 90 years old is probably not easy, but it does give you some sense of what are the things that are important to you that you wish to have in your life. And so people reflect and think, oh, I wish I had done this, or I'll have wish I did this, or if I don't do this, I know I'll feel bad about that, that I never did this thing or that thing. And that can be important to face that death, to avoid uh, avoiding the death anxiety and recognize you're going to die. And so let's make sure I live my life to the fullest. So we have a death anxiety and a do anxiety, and both of them can interact in different ways in affecting how we live our lives and sometimes really don't live our lives. And now related to death anxiety, we also have a, a fear of death or we have a strong avoidance of death. You can be almost asleep and if something happens that is threatening your life, all of a sudden you're going to spring into action and fight hard to make sure you don't die. 
that's very strongly ingrained in us. This is also why we can't try to, for example, even hold our breath to the point where we um, die because you will force yourself, the body will, to breathe. So we have a strong instinct to stay alive, a death instinct, to avoid dying. But what I find interesting is that we have this fear of dying, which makes sense. It is good to keep ourselves alive as far as preserving ourselves. But we don't have this fear of not living, which I wish we did have. This fear of what happens if I'm alive, but I don't live my life. You know, a lot of times let's imagine someone is almost dying and they fight to survive. So we have someone, this guy is just going about his life, really not doing much, but something happens. Someone threatens his life, puts a gun to his head, and he runs and saves his life. And then he might go back to living his life the same way. Now, oftentimes when people face death, they do change. But we can imagine that someone might fight so hard not to die. But are they fighting so hard to make sure they live their life fully? That they actually have something that they're living for? Why are we trying to survive so much? We do know it's an instinct. But what are we then doing with that life that we have? I'm going to survive. Okay, I didn't die. Now what? Now what do I want to do? And so this is actually why when people face their death in some way, in this kind of scenario I said, or they have a health scare that makes them realize, you know what, I don't know how many years I have left, which is true for all of us, but sometimes it gets put more in our face and makes it feel more real. We get out of that illusion of avoiding our death anxiety to realize that we one day won't be here anymore. What do I want to do with this time. And it's almost a cliche thing. You've seen it in so many movies and even uh, sometimes motivational speakers share their near death experiences or that they almost took their life. You might remember several years ago, Kevin Hines shared his incredible story of how he uh, tried to take his own life jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge, but he miraculously survived. And now he does an incredible job going around the country and the world talking about suicide prevention and mental health promotion of making people more aware of taking care of themselves and he's doing incredible work so it does happen he almost took his own life and then he seems to have realized how precious it was and is making great use of it to make sure he helps others so they don't face the same fate he could have faced he knows he could not have he could have easily not been here and so this is why as dark as it could sound it's important for us to face our own death in a very realistic way even as I say it, I, I've talked about it more recently on the show. Um, the book by Irvin Yalom and his wife Marilyn Yalom made it a topic I discussed. The passing of my own grandmother a few months ago also brought it to my mind even more. But I realized that it's a disservice to avoid thinking about our death. So I don't say it to make it bleak or to put you in a, a foul mood. I say it for us to recognize the gift that we are given to be alive that we don't know how long it's going to be and no matter however long it's going to be we would hope we utilize it to the best that we can and so we have to face some of our death anxiety meaning that we have to recognize it's going to happen that's okay to be aware of that and recognize that the more i live my life fully the less i will have death anxiety because i will have less regrets and recognize that what holding us back or what's actually contributing to our death anxiety is that i'm letting the do anxiety the anxiety of living life get in the way of me living my life to the fullest i'm not taking the chances i need to i'm not 
uh, taking risks or trying new things or recognizing that there's more to me. I'm stronger and better than I realize I am, but I have to risk seeing how strong I am. Kind of like if someone is trying to lift the most weight that they can, they have to keep doing it until they can't lift a certain amount of weight because then they don't know if they've reached the maximum. But if they just want to lift a small amount, say, oh, I can do this and I'm going to just keep doing this, then they'll never know how strong they are. And that's what many of us, almost all of us, are doing in our lives. We hold ourselves in a comfortable space because it's easier for us. It's not as scary. We don't have to risk. Part of that instinct of just survive kicks in of, well, you know, I'm surviving, so why would I try something that can get me hurt? The thing is that almost any of these things we try, we don't get killed or die from it if you fail you tend to grow if you fail in some way but because it feels like we shouldn't we're always easy at or good at finding ways to keep ourselves from doing something or doing something that's comfortable in the moment i sometimes think we have a instant gratification lawyer in our head that's so good at coming up for reasons to do whatever it is that's more comfortable in the moment uh you know what it's easier to start on a monday or what's the big deal anyway? Or I'd rather do that when I'm with someone. Or I'd rather this. Or I'd rather that. Or if we're indulging in something. Oh, you know, life is short. Yeah, which it is. I'm obviously talking about that today. But sometimes we make choices that make our short life less pleasant for ourselves in the long run. And we have to be aware of that. And of course, we have to balance enjoying life too. We do have to indulge in certain things. I think that's part of life that's beautiful and good, but in a way that's helpful to us in the long run and finding that balance as well. So we're very good at finding ways to stay in our comfort zone. Um, my own self, talking to people, but then also as a therapist, you just hear the incredible intellectual and mental gymnastics that people can do to keep themselves to do whatever it is they want to do in that moment from going back into a relationship that they know is bad for them to going back to using a substance that they know is bad for them to not doing something that actually would be good for them to not pushing themselves or encouraging themselves to try something new or get out of their comfort zone we're very good at that so take some resistance to not get stuck in that comfort zone which is what the do anxiety makes us unfortunately not do things and we want to overcome that so facing our death is very important to actually face to death death anxiety and when we feel that death anxiety it might actually push us towards overcoming the do anxiety yes it could be scary to try new things but the way i'm feeling about not living my life to the fullest feels too bad i don't want to experience that so i'm going to overcome that do anxiety which we also know feels good anytime you push yourself out of your comfort zone in the moment it won't feel good but it's the only way that we can grow and get stronger so let's go to a commercial break studio number 3104410555 we'll be right back welcome back studio number 3104410555 so in the previous segment i was talking about these two anxieties that we face in life death anxiety and what i call a do anxiety anxiety to do things in our own life and I wanted to now kind of uh, pivot to parenting when it comes to this and actually it relates to the book I discussed on Monday's show Rebel Talent by Francesca Gino 
where she was talking about how breaking the rules can pay and work in life, the subtitle, something like that. And so how we tend to think of being a rebel as something bad, and it can be depending on what you're doing. There's rebels that are just destructive, but there can be rebels breaking the rules to create progress. The only way we actually progress is you have to do things differently. You have to make changes, which means at times challenging or it requires challenging the status quo and how things have been done or have always been done. And so when it comes to parenting and this type of an issue and also related to this death anxiety and this do anxiety, parents can feel this pressure that I'm supposed to protect my children and have them survive, which of course makes sense and is a big part of what they are asked to do, especially as a baby, just keep your baby healthy and alive and doing well. And that makes sense that that's the pull. But so you have this anxiety again of this death versus due anxiety that parents can feel, I just want my kids to survive. But because of that, at times, the anxiety kicks in too much of making sure they're just protected that we take away from how they live their life. So we have this due anxiety for our kids. And so let me jump ahead a bit to the teenage years. You feel this very strongly where a lot of times parents will be like, oh, I don't want my kid to go to a party because I don't know if there's drugs there. They might do something bad. They might get hurt. They might get in trouble. Why, why don't they just stay home and, and watch a movie with me? You know, I'll get whatever food they want. I'll get whatever movie they want. They can even invite their friends. I just want them, you know, here. And that way I know they're safe. And so kids and parents can have this conflict where parents are so focused and preoccupied with just making sure their kid is okay, protecting them, making sure they're safe. And the teenager wants to start experiencing life, doing things, growing in different ways. And so because of that, they're pushing to get out there and do things. They want to go to the party and have fun. Now, we also know teenagers because of their brains and how they're developing and different factors at times can minimize certain risks in different ways. So they might not recognize that something's a risk. But nonetheless, we still see that the parents are tending to worry much more than the kids are. And oftentimes you can feel it. The parents just thinking, OK, I just want my kid to be safe. And if they're home, I can essentially guarantee, although you can't totally, but make sure they're more safe. But if they're out there, I don't know. And so this anxiety of making sure, you know, it might not just be death, but that they don't get hurt in some way overpowers them and it prevents them from allowing their child to do lots of things. So parents have to be aware of this, that their tendency will likely be in that direction, that they will want to make sure their child is safe, but safe often can mean not experiencing things. And if we recognize what a parent's overall role should be, it includes many factors and responsibilities. Of course, it includes making sure they're safe and protected and taken care of as far as their needs being met. But it also includes allowing them to grow and experience life and to become independent. And this is one of the challenging parts of being a parent. Eric Fromm talked about maternal love in this way, but I think it's really being a parent, you have this feeling that you're loving something in order to help it go away from you, which is paradoxical in the sense that usually when we love something, we want to be close to it, or we are trying to pull it closer to us. But as a parent, you have to be able to balance that you are trying to love your child in a way where they will no longer need you. 
Now, it doesn't mean they'll no longer have a relationship with you, but because of that anxiety of losing them, parents often unconsciously, it could be consciously too, but especially unconsciously, will often make their children dependent on them and fool themselves into seeing it as a loving thing. I am doing all these things for you out of love because we have this understanding that when we do work for someone, if we do something that takes effort as human beings and just biological beings, that's not easy. It doesn't feel good. So if I'm doing it, it must be a sign of love. So if I make all the calls for my daughter to make her appointments and do everything from her from A to Z, oh, it takes time. I don't even have that much time, but I still do it. So we fool ourselves into thinking it's such a purely loving gesture, but it could actually be a way of preventing your daughter from growing that actually is not good for them. So the more loving thing might actually be to not do something in that case and to give them the responsibility of doing something uncomfortable. They won't like it, but it actually will help them grow and see that I can handle these things. But it also means you'll have to let go of the uh, way that your daughter will need you. It's like, oh, she won't need me to make those calls anymore. And we have to recognize that relationships that are based on need only can't last very long. The baby needs the parents. That's very true. But as your child gets older, need will not be the thing that keeps you close to them. And first of all, your main goal shouldn't just be keeping them close to you. So looking at that perspective, you recognize that I'm not just trying to keep my my kids close to me. That's not what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to help raise them to turn into the best person that they can and then to be independent. And whatever relationship we have will remain to be seen, but hopefully it'll be based on having a good relationship, not based on some dependency or need that will keep them close to me. So parents from a very young age start to have these challenges. It's even hard as your kid is playing. Parents who are so worried about their kids getting hurt might not even let their children play in certain ways where they might get hurt. And again, you can go to that mindset of, well, they might get hurt really bad in this way, so why not just play in a different way where they can't get hurt? Even though, again, we can't fully protect them from everything, but we're trying to just reduce all the risk. And so we see, again, it's that death or injury type of anxiety compared to the letting them do something that makes us not let them do something that we're doing to our kids. They want to have fun, they want to play, and we're minimizing their fun they're having because we want to make sure nothing happens to them, they don't get hurt. So this is a very challenging thing that many parents, almost all parents will experience of finding this balance of protecting your kids because sometimes your child might want to do something that's hurtful. I'm not making the argument that no matter what your kid wants to do, let them do it every time because sometimes they will make the wrong and bad decisions or they might be getting themselves into a situation that's not good, not healthy. It's not to say, say yes to everything they say either, but it's being aware of what am I doing to my child? And, and the distinction I always try to bring up when this issue is at hand is looking at the pain your child is going through and trying to determine is this pain the pain of damage or the pain of growth that they might face. Some things will be damaging if your child jumps off from a super high, you know, I don't know, tree where they could get really badly hurt jumping off of that and break a bone 
Well, that's something. Now, of course, maybe if the tree's not that high, you might fear they're going to get hurt and let them anyway, and you probably should. But sometimes they're doing something that is hurtful and you have to protect them. But there's also letting them climb the tree and seeing what happens. They can get hurt, but that also leads to growth, lets them explore, lets them learn what they can do with their own body and with themselves. And they feel a lot better about themselves in the long run if we give them that space to explore something that does not happen very often. You know, as I'm saying this, I'm reminded of uh, recently with my father, we were talking about um, this kind of issue of how parents are and protectiveness and different things. And in our own childhood, me and my brother, when we were not very old, I think probably maybe I was like seven and my brother was 10, we would go to Lakers games with my my dad. And I'm going to admit to crimes from earlier years but we wouldn't sit in our seats me and my brother we'd go walk around and find other seats to sit in and try to be closer to the action because we were so excited to be there and we wanted to be as close as we could be and I didn't think of it then it would just happen but as I reflected now and thought about it we were young kids and my dad just let us go he kind of trusted that we'd be okay and I think most parents would not allow that and it would be looked at maybe even differently but I think it was actually good he just let us go and we'd make a meeting point it was uh, by section 30 after the game if we didn't see each other until then to meet with each other but I thought it was actually a pretty cool thing looking back on it that he gave us that space and felt comfortable Um, and as I think about it it gave a few messages one was it let us experience things and had a good time it showed a trust in us that we would be okay that we could figure things out but it also gives you the sense that the world is a safer place now I'm not saying do it in an unrealistic way but parents have a huge impact on how their kids are going to see the world Is it this terrifying place where everyone is out to get you, everyone is against you, people are waiting to just hurt you? Or is it a place where there are dangers, but most people most of the time are good and most of the time you're going to be safe? Now, I know it could depend on where you're living and and different factors, but many parents even living in a safe area might make their kids feel like there's just danger lurking around every corner and they should be afraid. And so again, it's this way of protecting them. If they think the world is scary, they'll avoid so many things and avoid anything that might possibly hurt them. And I'd much rather that than they risk putting themselves out there. So as parents, we have to be willing to face this anxiety that you will have and this sense that I'm supposed to just protect my kids. But you have to be careful that your protecting is not preventing that you're protecting is not preventing life. So we might think again, I'm just trying to protect and preserve life, but think about the life and the living that you're taking away based on what it is that you're doing. And so letting them actually be themselves. And so going back to this um, topic of breaking the rules, parents, of course, for their own benefit, and then also when their kids are going to school and need to be functioning in society, so to speak. We want our kids to follow the rules and we tell them that following the rules is good. While at the same time, every one of us, the people that we admire throughout history and even current times are the people that broke the rules in some way. They're the ones that pushed 
out of the box, tried something different. Everyone was looking at something one way. They saw it from a different perspective that was related to progress and making things better. And those are the people that we always respect and appreciate and admire. And so we have this paradox again where it's like, what do we do? We want our kids to follow the rules, but then we're also telling them to be yourself, which is what a lot of parents would say. Well, I want you to really be yourself, but also follow the rules. And so we have to be aware of this uh, dynamic that can pull in both directions and see that how much am I really allowing my child to be themselves if I'm always telling them to do things exactly like everyone else. I do think to function in society, there are certain things we need to follow and certain rules, and it could be good to at times do what others are doing just to be part of a community and to be part of a a functioning type of a society. But at the same time, when it comes to how we live our lives a lot of ways, who we are, how we express ourselves, parents often, because it's the fear of my kids are going to get rejected or hurt or something bad will happen to them, It's safer and it feels easier for us to have them just be like everyone else or just be in a way that's easy and calm and won't get you hurt. So we're choosing safe over really living life. And parents have to be very careful about this because you can get stuck in that comfort zone. And unfortunately, not only will it start as your comfort zone, but it will become your child's comfort zone. They'll learn that it's not good or safe or easy to just express yourself as you are, to live your life as you want, to live it and do the things you want. People want you to do what everyone else is doing, and it's scary and risky not to do that. So it's better for me to keep doing that good thing. As a parent, you have a huge impact in how your child is going to look at the world and look at their place in the world and look at how they can either be themselves and express that version of themselves that they want to be to the fullest or to try to hide that to be what everyone else wants them to be and that anxiety is there of the death or survival type of anxiety I just want my kid to be okay but really should we want our kids to just be okay or have an okay life or do we wish for them to have something better to have something more let's go to another commercial break our studio number 310-441-0555 We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I I think it was last week's show was talking about conflict avoidance and how almost all of us tend to be a little bit conflict avoidant, some of us much more than others, and how this actually takes away from our own experience in life and definitely takes away from our relationships. As I've said several times recently, if you avoid conflict, you're avoiding closeness. Without sharing what you're thinking and feeling, there's no way to have a good relationship. And so it's actually interesting if you think about it and say, oh, I've never had a disagreement with this person. We've never had some kind of an argument. It does sound like a good thing because we tend to think, of course, conflict bad, so no conflict good. But if there's no no conflict, like zero, that's actually not a good sign. And so what I tell couples, I've actually had them come into therapy, which is interesting because you think if they haven't had an argument yet, but they'll say we've been together a year and we never had a fight. And I always tell them I'm sorry to hear that because that means something's not right in the relationship. Either one or both of them is hiding some things that they're feeling and thinking 
or they are not that close with each other, and maybe some combination of both. Because if you're going to get very close with someone, it's inevitable that one, because you're spending more time together, that things will, of course, have to come up where you don't agree or you hurt one or the other person. And two, because as you're getting closer, you have more feelings, it's easier for things to, to make you feel something. So if your partner does something, it's going to make you feel very different than someone you barely know does that same thing because they have much more of an impact on you and they're connected to you in some way. So having an argument or bringing something up, and by argument, I don't necessarily mean it has to be ugly. It should never be disrespectful in what I'm talking about, but bringing up something where you're upset with your partner or not feeling okay, although it doesn't seem this way, it can be the most loving thing you can do for your partner, for yourself, and for the relationship. Often we think a good partner doesn't whine or nag or bring things up. And yes, people can bring things up in a way that is very whiny or attacking or trying to really criticize and be negative to someone. So it doesn't mean anytime you bring up conflict, it's good. Uh, I talked about this last week that some people, it's less common than people that are avoiding conflict, but they actually want conflict, not really to resolve things, just as a way of expressing anger or uh, putting someone down or putting themselves above someone. So that, of course, is not not healthy. But if we're bringing it up for the right reasons, because something is bothering us in the relationship and we don't feel good about it and we want to share it with our partner to resolve it and to end up being closer together, that's a very, very good thing and actually could be the most loving thing you can do, which can be odd to think that saying something that doesn't feel good in the moment can be the most loving thing. But really, I mean it when I say that. Now, I was also thinking of when we avoid conflict, what can happen inside someone's head. So people that avoid conflict, of course, it doesn't mean they don't get upset by things. They just get upset and they hold them in. They might even disconnect so much that they're oftentimes not aware that they're avoiding something. So people will say, no, I'm just easygoing. Things don't bother me. And you might be easygoing where lots of things don't bother you. But Many times when someone says they're easygoing, what it really means is that they're so disconnected that they don't even realize when something upsets them or bothers them. Sometimes not till after the fact, because they're so committed or almost vigilant to keeping the peace in the moment, they don't want to have that uncomfortable fight or feeling between them and the person, that in the moment they go, no, that's good, that's fine. They don't realize, and you can almost feel it in how I said that, there's like this block between their own feelings and themselves. It's just about keeping everything cool. And then often it's not till they're driving home or later on that day, they're like, oh, like, wait, they said that? I didn't like that. That really bothered me. And they might hold on to it. They might even think about saying something. They might even have some fantasies of telling the person something and going off on them or at least sharing how they feel. But often if they're very conflict avoidant, they, they never will. They'll just hold on to it. And so what can happen for a lot of people in their heads is they might be having the argument with the person a hundred times in their own head. I'm going to go tell them this. And with so many of my clients, we've explored this where when they look at what's happening in their head, they'll say, yeah, I'm going to go tell him that, you know, what he did was wrong and I'm right. Right. And look, and what if he says this? And like, I would have to tell him he's wrong. And, and they're proving what it feels like in their, at least the words they're using, they're trying to prove to the person that they're mad with that they were right and the person they're mad with did something wrong. But really they're trying to convince themselves that I have a right to be angry and I have a right to say something. 
because the other person's not there, but in their own head, they're having this whole uh, debate and going back and forth. Really, it's because they're trying to convince themselves, do I have enough of a reason to be upset, enough of a reason to get mad at them and bring something up? Or maybe should I just not say something again? And so it's interesting to see that anger playing out. And so my recommendation is rather than having that argument a hundred times in your head, have the argument one time with the person that you are upset with. Rather than having it mull over in your head over and over again, I'm going to say this, they say that. Can you, you know, even we might get amazed by them in our head. Can you believe they're saying this? Oh my gosh, I can't believe you think it was my fault. It's your fault. We're just arguing with ourselves because for a lot of your life, you might have felt that you shouldn't bring things up, that you shouldn't get upset with people, that you're not allowed to be mad. And so we can feel like we need this proof that we have to meet this really high standard in order to get upset. Only then am I allowed to show my feeling. And even still then in our heads, we're going back and forth of, is it enough to, to get there? Now, if you have people in your life that make you feel that way, that's not good. That if you let them know I'm hurt by something you did and they put it back on you or they tell you you're being too sensitive or that it's all your fault, that is not good. And that's someone that is invalidating your feelings and making it difficult for you to actually share what you feel. And a relationship like that is often very hard to maintain because you're essentially getting the message that the way this is going to work or the way we can make things work is if I do whatever I do and you be okay with it. And that's not how relationships work. There needs to be the space to for both individuals to share what they're upset about or don't feel good about. That's the only way it's going to work. So you need to be able to have that space to do that. So if you're not having that space from someone, be aware of that. But also recognize, is it coming from me that I'm not allowing myself the space to get angry with someone, to say something bothered me? And the resentment will only build if you don't say something. And so this is the classic example of when someone holds some things in and finally blows up because in their head they've gone over it so many times of how bad this thing is, there's almost a sense of like, how dare you to the other person? How dare you do whatever it is that you're doing that is making you, um, making me feel this way? And we're so upset with that person that they're doing that, but we don't realize those hundred arguments you had in their head, they weren't in those arguments. Yeah, you were thinking of them, but they weren't actually there to hear and say their side and to hear what you were feeling. So now that it's the hundredth time that you're upset or hurt with them, you finally can let them know, but you have to be aware that that's the part that they haven't heard yet. And so this is where, when you look at conflict, there was the book, Difficult Conversations. I don't remember the three authors' names on the top of my, off the top of my head, um, but they were talking about something that I thought was really valuable, which is that anytime you have a conflict or you're approaching a difficult conversation, to look at your contribution or both individuals to look at their contribution to the conflict. And so sometimes people feel like, well, this person keeps doing this to me. How is it anything from me? What, what contribution could I possibly have to a conflict where this person kept hurting me? But oftentimes in those scenarios, what the person will realize is that for things have gone as bad as they have, the part that you've contributed is that you didn't bring anything up. You didn't share your feelings for the person to know that this was bothering you. 
Maybe you think it was obvious, but we can't assume people are going to read our minds and know what we're feeling and what we're experiencing. So if you find that you're so mad at someone that they keep doing something, if you've brought it up, that's a different type of a scenario and that can be its own thing to look at. But if you haven't brought it up to them, you do have to take that responsibility for your contribution to things that I haven't brought anything up. I haven't told them I don't like this, so I can't expect them to know. And how angry I am that this happened 10 times, well, I can say maybe once or twice it happens, like, you know, that's going to happen and maybe I wouldn't say anything yet but those other eight that was on me to have said something up to that point to let them know this is not okay or this bothers me or I want things to be some other way and one of the few reasons or there's a couple I'll share that someone doesn't bring things up one is that we don't want to ever get angry so for some people anger is in their shadow it's a feeling they never want to experience, they never want to express, they never want people to ever see them as someone who's angry. They don't want to ever have that experience with someone. And so because of that, they are always okay. So this goes back to that thinking you're easygoing, but it's actually that you're quieting your anger and your upset feelings all the time. You're actually not as easygoing, but that's okay. And then related to that, there can be the sense that I shouldn't have wants and needs. I shouldn't ask for anything. So if someone does something, I'm easygoing, so I'm okay with it. And so we have probably taken on this role from childhood to make things comfortable and safe for everyone, to avoid conflicts because conflicts are scary in the home, to keep things peaceful. We also might have gotten reinforced for that. You maybe heard, oh, it's so good. You just take everything so easily or you never get mad or you're always happy or you never get sad. And so because of that, we learned that what makes me good, the reason why I get loved and what makes me lovable is to never get upset and to not have needs, to not ask for something because that can inconvenience someone, to not ask for something different from what's going on because that could create a conflict, to not get angry if someone does something I don't like. And so we learn and it could even feel so good to never ask for anything to never be that person that brings something up that can become almost like your thing. This is what makes me lovable in an unconscious way. Rarely would someone be aware of this or they might become aware of it in therapy or on their own reflection and then try to change it. But people would not say this is how it's good to be, to never share your feelings or to never say something. And the way we fool ourselves, we think that, of course, I would say something if I was angry. I just don't get angry. Nothing bothers me. But as a human being, that's not how we work. Things are going to make you upset. Or at minimum, you're not going to like something, something that someone does or the way that things are going. And so being easygoing is the way to try to get around that and telling yourself that and telling people that. And you might get praised for that. Oh, you're so easygoing and simple. But actually, that's not a good thing. So if you hear you're easygoing, it can be good if you're really genuinely maybe less you know, um, anxious than some people about certain things, or you take things a little bit easier, there can be something good about that. But you should also take it as a slight red flag or a warning that you might be hiding your feelings about things. Are you really easygoing or are you being easygoing for other people to make them more comfortable because you think that's going to make relationships go more smoothly? And so going back to what I was saying before about having the argument in your head, 
people can have so much stress. It's not that they don't have anger. The anger is just becomes this inner battle that's constantly happening of, oh, they did this and it's so bad and I want to talk to them and I'm going to tell them this and how dare they. But then in real life, we're afraid to actually bring it up and face it. So we have the conversation again tomorrow, especially if they keep doing the thing that's bothering us. Now it's like, oh my gosh, what are they doing? I can't believe it. They're still doing it again. Oh, you think it's okay? And they go back and forth in their head to have a whole argument without the other person having any idea of what's going on. So we have to realize we deserve to share how we feel. And actually other people that have relationships with us, they deserve and they, if they really do genuinely love us and want a type of equal relationship, they'll want to hear it too. Sometimes at the moment it might not feel good, but most people, if you ask yourself, if your partner is really, really upset with you, do you want to know? And of course the feeling is, well, I, I'm, I don't like maybe the conversation or I'll be a little bit upset confused or surprised or might even feel bad that I hurt them. But most people, if they're genuinely caring about the other person, they'll say, definitely, I don't want to not know. I would hate to not know that my partner was mad at me about something I'm doing, you know, whether it's every day or keeps happening or something I did a while ago that really bothered them or an ongoing thing, they would want to know. And so you have to recognize you're depriving your loved ones when you don't share what you're feeling. And if they don't want you to share what you're feeling, well, then maybe they're not so loved ones. They're not really giving you love if they're saying you need to just be a certain way for me to want to be in a relationship with you, to be close with you. You need to act in a way that makes me feel good and never makes me feel uncomfortable. Even if you're upset, I don't want to hear it. And if you're upset, it's on you. Sometimes people who become this way maybe have been told and they maybe in some ways are that they are sensitive. And so you might be someone who's more emotionally sensitive and feels things strongly. And you've been told that you shouldn't feel this way. It's your fault if you're hurt rather than let me look at how I hurt you. But if that's the kind of person we're talking about, they're not someone that's giving you the space to be yourself and to be in a real relationship. You are just serving a function for them to make them feel good. That's not what a real relationship needs to be like. So if you find yourself having arguments with people in your head over and over again, realize it's that you're trying to convince yourself that you have the right to share what you're saying. So really you're arguing with yourself, which is probably an internalized voice that you were told not to share things, but you're having this argument with yourself. And so I'd recommend rather than having the argument a hundred times in your head, have the genuine real argument once out loud with the person and at least that way you won't be holding it in and hopefully it'll end with a better result or at least you know you'll be being true to who you are. All right, let's go to another commercial break. We'll be right back. Studio number 310-441-0555. Let's go to a caller now. Radio Hamra, you're on the air. Hello. Hello. Yes, hi. Thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Farid. Hi. Uh, thank you very much for your very nice program, very informative program, and your great advices. Thank you. I appreciate uh, it. I have a question about my uh, teenager son. Mm -hmm. He's a... Uh, 15 years old and he's very nice boy and uh, uh, everything perfect and uh, about a few months ago he did, told me that uh, um, I want to have a girlfriend mm -hmm. 
mm-hmm. and we talk about that and uh, he knows he's a very responsible and uh, then he told me that uh, okay I like a girl and I want to invite her for a movie or a dinner or something out and uh, I said okay and um, I prefer that if you be with uh, other friends that I feel more comfortable you know that uh, not you, only you two guys are, you know, uh, together, at, at least, you know, um, some friends are around because sometimes I see that uh, uh, when they, they are two young uh, teenagers, sometimes uh, they get bullied by not uh, good uh, people. So the... What, what do you mean by... When you say bullied, what do you mean? That, uh, you know, the, it started to make a... Uh, problem for them and then um, uh, not bully they say that uh, you know they, uh, they they start a fight or something you know when uh, they see the young uh, teenagers together so the, I was worried about that and then I said um, maybe with the group is better but he, she, he said that okay just we go for a movie and then we go for a, a small dinner or something I said, okay, but later he come back and said, you know, the girl says that, uh, uh, can I go to the, her house? And mm-hmm. then, uh, because they haven't uh, never been together out, you know, mm-hmm. uh, except in the school. So uh, then um, I, I am a, a little, uh, um, say, concerned that what is the, uh, best way, but is uh, what I can tell him that uh, he has, you know, followed. Is any rule or anything that uh, uh, we have to be aware of? Well, I don't know if there's going to be any rule because um, another thing to be aware of is that whatever you, it's nice that he's asking you, but he can do eventually what he's going to do anyway. So it seems like he has a close relationship with you, that he wants to share these things with you. Um, it, it, my assumption is your concern about him being at her home is that they might get sexually involved. Right. Okay. And so you want to prevent that or make it not as easy. And so I can understand you might not want to, you know, have her over, let's say, to spend the night or have him spend the night, uh, but overall to try to stop them from doing something like that, probably you won't be able to make it either happen or not happen in some way. So we have to be aware that you might, in your mind, not want him to get involved sexually in that way, but you're not going to be able to control that. And to me, it would be better to have conversations with him about these issues about um, sex or if he has any questions or wants to understand these things better but as far as putting a rule you know even of going out alone or not I know that's a cultural type of thing in Iran I know that many times if people were serious you you couldn't go out alone you would go with the friends or you would come over and see family only but never would the two people be alone together even if they were not just teenagers even when they were older it's kind of like the courtship and people might still be doing that but probably your son's generation it's not really happening so much and the the concern that they're going to make fun of them or creates drama i don't know if you meant other kids will see them and 
make drama for them because they don't like that they're together or I don't know, talk about them. Um, but those things are, are going to happen really at any age. So about the rumors or, or not rumors, but the way you said they'll talk about them. Can you tell me more what you're concerned about when you said it's not good for the two of them to be alone or for people to see them alone? No, I, I, that's not my concern. I don't have any problem uh, with that. And um, just uh, for the safety, for our, for their safety, I thought that, you know, when they are in a group, uh, maybe less problem from other, you know, people, you know, um, strangers um, to them. So that was my concern about this sex we have talked about it and uh, he is very responsible and he he understand that but uh, m- my advice to him was that you know the you haven't been together uh, um, and it's better that maybe sometimes you know you go to different places together and so and I, I think that you are going too fast that you want to go to her house or she's inviting you to her house and she, he said that I want that uh, even you and um, her parents get uh, you know um, acquainted and you know and you know them I said it's fine but uh, I don't know that is it uh, the, the right way to do it that first they start with the parents or talk with the parents or the parents should be, get involved later I don't know really well, this is my yeah. first experience sure and I think at their age of 15 getting the parents involved probably isn't necessary I mean if you want to meet them or they you know they want to meet each other you guys want to meet each other that's that's fine I'm not I don't think it's something bad but I don't feel that it's necessary because at 15, realistically, it's not a serious relationship. Doesn't mean they won't have strong feelings. Teenagers, when they date and can even feel love and fall in love, it's very intense. But the getting the parents involved, I don't see it as necessary. You can, you know, as a friendly kind of a, a thing. But um, I would maybe wait till they're more serious. Maybe they date just a couple of weeks, so it's not, you know, as necessary. But I don't see it as something that you definitely have to meet their parents I'm, I'm wondering for you is it something you want to meet the parents also to s- understand her or her family more in some way yes yes that's uh, 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 that was one of my concern but I thought that if they uh, just uh, you know for some time they be together and they know each other and then uh, naturally the families get involved or you know um, is better that exactly what you said and uh now the point is that uh, for the, their first meetings uh, do you think that is proper that he goes to their house i don't know really the family and i don't know the reaction of the family these are the things that uh, um, i am concerned well i mean you can ask him about that too what he thinks and feels about it uh, you know in general people can have different rules or things about their kids going over to someone's house if they haven't met the parents or they'd like to even at least say hi to the parents or something people have those um, rules sometimes you know yeah it could, they can meet in public but I would be aware that you're not going to control this situation let's say you say they can't go to each other's houses to me it's not going to stop anything from really happening That that's mm-hmm. going to happen anyway so uh, I think it's tough 
Now, is this your only child or your oldest child? The only child. Only child, yeah. So, you know, facing these things, this is always a very hard time for parents because before this, you know, you know, they're kids. They're just everything they're doing is kid-like. But as they enter into the teenage years, they start to transition into more adult-like experiences, you know, from dating to sexual things, even, uh, you know, things like drugs, alcohol start to become on their mind and what else they want to do with their lives. And so it can be very challenging for most parents to deal with this transition into adolescence and the teenage years where now the things your kids are doing it can make you feel a different thing than you did when it was like okay maybe he gets hurt playing soccer or something which you might worry about but this stuff i'm sure worries you more than those things um and so it's going to be a lot of these experiences of him facing adulthood more and more and giving him that space to do so i think it's great that he feels comfortable to come to you uh i would look at your role less as I have to tell him what to do and and figure out the right things for him and more that you're someone that he can talk to and share what he's also thinking and feeling and going through that you're somewhere where he can explore himself even more and understand things a lot of times parents think they have to have all the right answers that you should do this you should never do this it should be exactly this way Um, But more often than not, what your kids need is someone that they can talk to to try to understand life and life experiences more. So I would recommend giving him that space that he can talk to you about these things and not always thinking about what exactly should I tell him he should or shouldn't do. Sure. No, no, he's uh, very comfortable and I don't want that uh, he'd be scared to talk about things you know yeah i want that uh, you know he feel comfortable and safe that anything that uh, good or bad wants to share mm-hmm. he share it so i am very careful about that and uh, we don't have any problem in that area good. and uh, just my advice to him was that you know uh, don't uh, hurry in things you know give uh, yourself and herself and uh, some time you know mm-hmm. and then uh, um, I don't have problem meet with their uh, parents but uh, um, I just I wanted to see for at the beginning what is a uh, better way you know that uh, um, the, what area is better that they meet or uh, you know at the beginning of such a relation yeah. And what places is uh, more proper that they meet or get together? That was only sure. my concern. Yeah, and that's I'm glad that it seems like you do have a good relationship with him about those things. I I don't think there's a exact right way or right place where they shouldn't go to the movies or they should, um, you know, go here or there. I wouldn't worry too much about them being so right or wrong, or or that people are going to say things to them. Um, I guess you're worried that if they're out and people see a young guy and a girl, they might bother them in some way. Yes. Well, I mean, that can happen if it's two boys, two girls. Like, people can get bothered. I don't think it's that much of an issue. Things can happen in any way, but I I think you might be more worried about that than you need to be, Um, that if they're together necessarily, they're going to attract some really bad attention. Uh, maybe less here than you know in some other countries I would say but um, I don't know if it's something I'd be so worried about happening okay 
thank you very much, Doctor. Sure, thank really, you. it was very helpful. Oh, it was nice talking to you. Take care. Thank you. Bye bye. Um, so appreciate uh, speaking with, with that father about his son, and clearly he's concerned and wants to know how to help his son in the best way or what his role should be. And as I mentioned with him, it's tough when your kids become teenagers because when they're kids, it's just you know about flame playing and having fun and there's different things that happen but the things that happen to them feel a lot less scary or intense or the stakes feel lower when they are kids but when they enter teenage years all of a sudden parents get more concerned and in some ways understandably so the things that they're facing are bigger issues they can create bigger problems for themselves and the trouble they can get and the relationships they have and the types of things they're doing. And so for a lot of parents, this can be a big source of anxiety. Not only that, now with this father, his son seemed to talk to him about a lot of things, but in the teenage years, kids move away from their parents more and their peers become a bigger source of their life experience of who they want to spend time with, who they look up to and who they look to about how they should live their life and what they should and shouldn't do. And so that can add to the anxiety that parents experience because not only are their kids in a way entering the, you know, the big scary world of real life and adult life in some ways, but also that they are now less close to them. So they're less aware of what they're doing in their life. They're less involved with what's going on. So they feel like they can do less to make sure that their kids are okay. And that can be quite scary or add more anxiety for parents to deal with. My kid is getting more into the world and more into situations and wants and desires that are a little scarier for me and I'm less close and they are less close to me and I feel less involved and so this feeling of control becomes less and so it'd be tough to realize we never had control but as your kids get older you're going to have less and less control and you should have less and less control and we do have to more trust them and trust what's going to happen to them as scary as that can be because we can't uh, control what's happening in their life. And so what we can hopefully maintain as much as our children are open to it is a relationship where they can talk to us about what they're going through, what they're experiencing, the challenges they have, the things they worry about, the things they want to see happen and not happen in their life. And as I shared with him, often parents think they need to have the answers. I need to know exactly what to tell them, explain everything, let them know what's the exact right or wrong thing to do. But most of the time what your kids need is someone that they can come to and and reach out to and share with and explore and think about things. And yeah, they'll probably want your advice here and there. But the main component of what you're doing when you talk to them shouldn't be just telling them what to do. It should be maintaining a conversation with them. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. back studio number three one zero four four one zero five 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 let's go to another caller radio hamra you're on the air uh yes uh, is that me on the air yes that's you thank you for calling yeah thank you for uh, such a nice uh, program my pleasure uh, my question is uh, about uh, uh, is it necessary parent talk to talk about sex or dating before their teenager enter to the uh, to the age or is there any specific 
age for it. Of course, I have a 23 years old daughter and 17 years old son. For my daughter, I didn't talk because mm-hmm. I was coming from Iran. I, I never had such a thing and I didn't know how to go through such a uh, position, you know. And uh, she just went under her friend's control, whatever happened. And I don't have, uh, I'm not, uh, I'm not happy, you know, <laughs> with my experience. But my son is 17 years old and she does, he doesn't have a girlfriend yet. Um, I need, I want to ask you, is it necessary parent talk to their teenage before um, entering in um, such a um, situation or not, or just let them go by their own feelings. Well, I think, you know, necessary, uh, you know, rarely is going to be something is necessary. Do I recommend it? Absolutely. Um, And not just about, you know, and as you said, I think you brought up a good point. You said coming from Iran and there's a big cultural factor here. So in America, a lot of times what they'll say for parents is like, have you had the talk? with your kids and when they mean the talk what they mean is about sex and sometimes reproduction and those kinds of conversations but all the Persian families I work with almost never have they had this talk especially in their own childhood if they're adults but even with their own kids now it's not something we are used to you know in our culture uh, in the Iranian culture it's very much the sense that if you talk about it it makes it more real or you might give them the idea to do something or you might be telling them you think it's okay if you talk about it so if we never mention something then somehow it makes it less likely to happen or maybe our kids will never get into those things or wonder about them but the truth is kids from a very young age start wondering about these things and and even asking each other or they heard something or someone found something and they you know they're trying to understand and and unfortunately with the internet even though parents should put controls and be mindful and try to be aware of what their kids are being exposed to very often sadly they're getting exposed way too young to things they shouldn't and this could just bring up more questions rather than answer their question uh, their you know their questions and it, or it might actually make them understand less because they see things that are far from the actual truth or something realistic so i think because of that the way to look at this question is not do i have to talk to them or is it necessary to talk to our kids it's that do i want to be part of this process of them understanding this part of life and the world because at some point they will I mean your 17 year old absolutely already has and knows a lot and you know it's not about you informing him or educating him also generally these kinds of talks go better with the same sex parent so if his father is in the picture it probably would be better it doesn't have to be but a lot of times it's easier for the father to have the conversation with the son and the mother to have it with the daughter, but it doesn't have to be that way. Um, But I think it's, do I want to be part of this process, part of him understanding about this part of life and also showing him I can talk about it or do I not want to be part of it? That's really the only thing we're looking at because he's going to learn about sex and these things. It's just, is he going to have you or his father part of that process at all or not? Uh, will he have you to talk to if things come up in the future or not? Not is he going to know about it or not, you know? Excuse me, doctor. Sure. Uh, uh, by saying, do I want to be a part, do you mean I as parent or I as 
a child be a part of this conversation. I'm, I'm talking to you as the parent. Yeah. Do you want to oh, be? Oh, yeah. Do you so want him I to? Have, yeah. I have asked my both kids, actually, my daughter and my son. My daughter never, ever, she always told me, are you kidding me? You know, <laughs> stay out of it. And my son, uh, the same thing. No, uh-huh. I'm not going to talk to you at all. You know, okay. that's his response to me. Well, you know, and, and you know, uh, this is also part of teaching them about sex is that if both people don't want it, you can't have a conversation. So it's just like other things that if both people don't want something, we can't force it. So we, we you know, if they, they don't want to talk to you, I wouldn't say you have to make them sit and force them to talk to you. That's not going to work. It has to be if they want it and in a way they feel okay with. And yeah, for a lot of families, it's an uncomfortable thing. Um, especially depends on how your relationship has been with them and about these things to begin with. And so I would recommend for parents, not that they talk about sex in some kind of a explicit way, but that they show they're comfortable talking about different topics from a young age with their kids. So what I always tell parents is that, you know, you as a parent should be okay to talk about anything that your kid wants to talk to you about. Right. So if your kid is eight and has a question about sex, you don't say, no, we don't talk about sex in this home. You want to see what are they wondering about? What do they want to know? doesn't mean you're going to tell them everything. You're still going to be aware that they're eight years old. So I don't tell them everything about sex or they don't have to know all the details. But I'm never going to reject their conversation or make them feel like in this house we don't talk about this or that. Because what you want to do is show them that every conversation, it's like a bridge. You can talk to me about any of these things. There's all these bridges towards me, and you can get on that bridge anytime you want. You want to talk about drugs? We can talk about drugs. You want to talk about suicide? We can talk about suicide. You want to talk about sex? We can talk about sex. So you're showing them that anything they want to talk about is okay to you if they are okay with it. So maybe with your kids, you haven't had that kind of a relationship where you've talked about some things. So all of a sudden you say, I want to sit down and talk to you about sex. You're like, whoa, 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 like no way. We're not doing that, you know? So they might not feel comfortable about it. And like I said, you can't force them. You can say, I'd like to, or I'm open to it if you want to talk about things. But especially, I mean, your daughter at her age, there's not really much, you know, she's going to ask from you. She might want to talk to things about, but it's not to learn from you probably. And for your son, the same thing. And he might not want to talk to you about it. Now, Of um, course, doctor, yes. uh, for my daughter, I meant before when she was like yeah. 15, 16, I brought this question. Not now. Of course, I, uh-huh. I know I, I can't. <laughs> I can't. Da- I'm not going to dare to <laughs> ask such a question <laughs> at this age. But I mean, my kids, uh, uh, my daughter that time and my son now, since mm-hmm. last two years, I have been uh, asking her, him, do you want me to talk? He always uh, was was kind of rejecting me, but he's very comfy, you know, talking about anything else other than this okay. matter, you know. And uh, what I'm understanding, I just have to leave it on him, right? Well, to a degree, I think you've let him know you're open to having the conversation and we can't force him. Yeah. Now, is there, you know, is there another parent in the picture, like a father in the picture? Yeah, father. My husband never, ever, he has been in U.S. since he was like 16, 17. And I married him when I was like 33, 34. Uh (laughs) And I was, uh, I was assuming he is more 
you know, more uh, comfortable mm-hmm. with uh, coming up with this kind of discussions around kids. But I even cannot bring up with him as as his wife. I cannot bring up these kind of subjects with him. Uh, and you mean, he you mean not within, gonna never you mean within open your, up. within your marriage you can't even open them up but between you and him yeah okay. he's not that kind of person that I bring up the uh, hmm. subjects around sex or sex watch sexuality with my husband unfortunately yeah and, and I, I have been telling him um, I I want to ask you please talk to our son uh, yeah. but I don't know if he talked or he never responds and but I as a mother I I, I need to educate myself I need to know what I have to do yeah well um, you know the thing you brought up now about marriage uh, sex is an important part of a relationship an important part of a marriage and unfortunately you're not the only couple that doesn't have conversations about their sex life I see it with a lot of people I work with in therapy or just people in general, they're not talking about sex. We think it's something um, taboo. We think that it's going to make our partner feel bad. We think that it should just work out anyway. It's natural. The desire is natural to want to have sex, but it doesn't mean your sex life is naturally going to be perfectly smooth or going to go well for both people. So um, from what you're describing, your husband is not comfortable with these topics with you and so maybe he's not with your son uh i i think he would be the better choice and especially him being more uh, you know living in america for much more of his life you would think he could be a better candidate to talk to your son about these things but uh and if he doesn't want to you can't force him either your your husband to have that talk but i would think he would be the right person to do that uh, but if he doesn't want to do it, there's only so much you can do. You can bring it up to him again or ask him or say, I, I think it would be good to talk to him um, and-, and see what he says. When you brought it up to him, what did your husband say about talking to your son? Well, uh, he never responds uh, to me. He just uh, shakes his head and he never talks, to be honest with you. <laughs> hmm. and, I, and he doesn't like I continue yeah, uh, and I think these kind of marriages, uh, uh, well, my experience, boys, especially boys, when they come live in country like America for like twenty, thirty years, and then go back to their old country, marry a girl, and I thought my husband really loved me. He came all the way from America to <laughs> Iran and married me. And uh, I was so trusted on him to be uh, to to be open, just like American people. What the way that I was, people are thinking in Iran right now, how uh, open people are here. But he was not, and he was uh, after marriage. I just uh, felt like he was looking for somebody to be under his control. He wasn't. Uh, looking for a wife to have like sex life or as a wife, you know, as a wife, only uh, a person um, be very good under his control and he can satisfy himself that way. That's that's my feeling from my marriage, to be honest with you. Yeah. But I got my kids and then I 
when I found really what is going on in my marriage life, uh, but I had my kids and I took the responsibility on my shoulders, I made the mistake. I should have think why this man coming all this way from America to Iran marrying a girl, uh, since we have many, many beautiful, educated girls in United States, why they, why they have to do such a thing, you know, mm-hmm. is not make sense. Uh, and it's is, is just control in my life, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, for anything else, unfortunately, I don't have answers. I'm asking questions, but he doesn't answer me uh, uh, even one word. And I just need to keep the uh, space peacefully and quiet to uh, until my kids like on their own feet and uh, uh, stress stress free. You know. Hmm. Well, I mean that's uh, unfortunate. You're essentially saying you're recognizing or you feel that your only choice is just to survive this marriage or keep the peace for the kids and we don't have to get into if that's the best way or if there's any other way maybe you don't have another choice than that that other than divorce or other than bringing because you're saying if you bring things up he doesn't seem to respond to them Uh, but you kind of I think brought it up yourself these two points that for you it seemed like wow if he's coming all the way here for me to Iran to get me he must really like me but you're realizing that it could have been more that he was looking for a certain type of wife and a certain type of marriage that was more disconnected or just to have someone or more traditional in the sense that it's more about just what you see is that he wants to be okay himself but not to be that close to you um and so that's what you're what you're feeling or trying to deal with which is tough so you you know you brought it up to him about talking to your kids if he doesn't want to or talking to your son it's hard to put that pressure on him but I do see that you feel stuck because you want to help your kids. Exactly. But, I feel stuck. I, yeah. And you also feel, I feel stuck like in the I marriage. can talk, but I cannot. You have, yeah. I have to zip my mouth. <laughs> I need to talk. <laughs> well, that's the thing I want you to, you know, as you're telling me, is it necessary? And I think it's very good for you to talk to your, your kids. But the very, very important part is they have to want to have that conversation with you. Uh, you can't just force them or put that pressure on them that they have to oh, talk no to. i never force yeah. i i try to be very good uh, very open <laughs> yeah that's good and you that's all you and can easy. do is show them that they you know you're there to talk about it but they won't but it does seem like it's a tough situation you're in in the marriage too of how to get this to work that you're just trying to keep the peace um it, it could also lead to when you don't have as much of a connection with your partner that you turn even more to your kids to get your emotional needs met. So that's something that I'd want you to be aware of because you see this pattern happen a lot, especially the stereotypical way is, yeah, the husband might not be very available emotionally to the wife. And so the wife turns to the kids to fulfill them even more because there's something missing in what they need from the partner. And so as a parent, they almost try to get too much. So that's something I would want you to be aware of because you might fall into that that I have to do even more for my kids, which is obviously good. You want to do a lot, but sometimes we can get too involved or think we have to do too much that actually it can hurt them rather than just help them. That's true, yes. I, I think sometimes I, I do too much. Yeah, okay. Tell me about that. How do you see yourself do too much sometimes? Uh, like when I want to feed them, 
और when i uh, when i ask them like take care of their hygiene you know looks mm-hmm. like it's it's too much i keep go over asking them and uh, yeah. making them do it yeah and that it's good that you're aware of it even and then changing it can be hard but because there's a sense that if i'm we always feel that if i'm doing more that means i'm let's say loving my kids and if i don't do something that means i'm not loving them but sometimes what our kids actually need is space and they need us to actually let them do something or for us not to do something for them or to give them a little room to grow and room to be themselves and that's something that might be your challenge especially as they get older but even whatever age but as they get older they need it even more but that to give them space and then you're going to have to look at in your own life what is giving you fulfillment and meaning outside of them because from what you shared your marriage is not giving you much of that and so you're going to turn to your kids but as they need you less and less i think it's important for you to look at what else there is and i feel empty now as right. they are growing i feel yeah. like empty then yeah. empty because i have to let them you know go more on their own yeah and that's that's what I was saying that's my my concern would be that mm-hmm. right you're you know you're letting them go more there's less of them you're going to feel an emptiness because it does seem from your relationship with your husband you're not getting much so i think it's important for you to think about what else in your life could give you fulfillment or meaning outside mm-hmm. of your kids and outside of your parents a lot of times we're taught especially in Iranian culture especially for women that the the family the husband that's it there should be nothing else or at least sometimes that's the message i hope that's not the feeling you have but i hope you look at what else there can be in your life that that gives you meaning is there anything else in your life that you enjoy that you do that you feel good about that you think uh, more and more you can put energy and time into that uh oh yeah i can find many things uh I just had to think of it, you know. Yeah. By uh, by points that you brought up, it makes me think that I have to go after things that goes with my age and leave them alone. Uh, of course, I'm trying to not be that uh, attached to my kids, uh, but especially after this corona situation, uh, they had to stay with us and. Uh, I'm too involved. It, it has been like a four-season restaurant in my house, and <laughs> <laughs> every kid is having different time of meal yeah. and asking for different type of meal. And I have been spending in kitchen a lot more than thinking of something else. Yeah, and so I mean, you could still do. It's not that obviously you can't do that. Maybe how much of it you're doing might become less and as your kids get older they'll need that less too but i do think it's important for you to look at what you can do as you're saying i'm glad you're aware of it you're noticing that and it's going to take getting out of your comfort zone it could even take you feeling like i'm not doing enough for my kids cuz some of your energy will go in other places but they're going to need you less and less and maybe some of what you're doing is you're saying maybe is even too much giving them a little space giving them a little bit of more responsibility might even be better for them and it might be hard for you at times cuz you might feel like I'm loving them less or I'm not doing everything I can but sometimes doing too much is going to hurt them rather than help them and so I hope you do focus on that and think of what else can I do in my own life for me that makes me feel good that makes me feel fulfilled and I hope you won't wait to get started on that That's true thank you doctor Sure so nice talking to you have a good day Nice talking to you too Take bye. care bye bye 
All right, let's go into our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So with the previous caller, some topics came up, some issues came up that I wanted to conclude the show about. Um, one was about the dynamics in the family. And so when we have, let's say in this kind of standard example of two kids and parents, what the parents need to do is maintain a healthy relationship for multiple reasons. One is to benefit the children and how the children feel the home is secure and stable because that love does form a foundation for what the home will be like. Also, it models a good relationship for them and what good relationships can and should be like and what they should expect to get from them. But also because when the parents are more fulfilled and connected in their relationship, they will have less of an emotional need left over to get from the kids. So what commonly does happen is when there isn't a healthy relationship in a marriage, and especially if one parent feels that the other one is isolating them or is living their own life and not connected to them, the parent can feel this need, even unconsciously, to get more from their kids. And the more typical example, especially in um, traditional, let's say, Iranian homes and different uh, homes where it's more male dominated is often the male can have their own life and things are going on might not be very connected emotionally to their wife and so the wife is left with this emptiness even our caller mentioned that herself um, that will try to get filled in different ways but one of the main ways and the easiest way that will end up happening is they'll turn to their kids to try to fulfill those emotional needs in some way and as, as this uh, caller, I think, had some insight, which is good, and I hope she'll be able to utilize that insight in, in changing or making changes in her behavior and things that are going on in her life, um, which is a challenge, is that as your children get older, if you are getting a lot from them emotionally and you don't realize it, you will have a hard time or you might resist their own development or their growing into their own person because now they need you less. So you might want to try to find ways to, to make them continue to need you or to have you in their life to make them dependent on you. So the parental relationship is so important, not just their marriage for how it makes the kids feel, but for other reasons, including the dynamics that it creates. So what I tell parents is to me, of course, parenting it involves your relationship with your kids, but when you are married and you're a parent, part of being a good mother or father is being a good husband or wife and creating a good marriage between you and your partner. Now, another issue that came up that I also wanted to mention is the issue of talking about sex. So now she was talking about talking about sex with your kids, and we talked a bit about that and um, that itself can be and has been segments for, for a show, and uh, I could talk about that and will again, I'm sure, in the future. But I did want to talk about what she also said about herself and her husband, because many couples don't ever talk about their sex life. They actually don't have conversations about it and think that that's okay. I've seen couples that have been married 10, 15 years and have never discussed their sex life. It's just something that's happening or happens in the background. And as I shared with her, there's some reasons with that that I'll get a little bit more into. One is this feeling that sex is just an uncomfortable thing to talk about. So we 
tend to avoid uncomfortable conversations. Uh, also, if we're not feeling good in the sex life, we might think our partner is going to get offended if we bring something up, if we mention that we're not feeling good, don't like something, want something more, want something different, that they're going to take it so personally or harshly that we shouldn't bring it up. And by the way, this is reflective of how we might, might take it if they bring something up. We might take it very personally that they're somehow saying something bad about us. Sometimes people will think that if someone is not happy in their sexual experience with us or sexual relationship, it means they're saying we're not attractive which it doesn't have to be that, or that we're not good in some kind of a performance type of a way, and it doesn't have to be that either. Sex, like all aspects of a relationship, involves two people who have a unique set of needs and wants and preferences, and without those being communicated, we should not expect our partner just to know. And likewise, we shouldn't expect that we should just know and that everything we're doing has to be the best in the right way and that it can't be better. So for that reason, we also avoid the conversation. Another thing people will say is like, you know, well, to people, we even think there should be, is there a sexual chemistry? And of course, there's attraction and there's things that definitely matter when it comes to the sexual relationship. But just because the desire for sex is natural, it doesn't mean having a healthy sex life is natural. This is similar to with parenting where people will say, well, why should I have to study parenting books or try to learn or become a better parent? Isn't being a parent natural? And the desire to be a parent is very natural. For most people, they do have the strong desire to have kids. And that part is natural. Being good at being a parent, that's not just something natural or something that's innate and you're going to be good at. Uh, also, being in a relationship. There is a natural desire to be with someone, to be close, to be attracted to people and to be closer to them. But it doesn't mean you're going to be good at relationships just because the desire is natural. And so similarly, it doesn't mean that just because sexual attraction and desire is very natural, that you naturally will be good at it or have a good relationship with your partner when it comes to this aspect of the relationship. So if you haven't talked to your partner about sex, it's a good thing to bring it up just to check in, see how it's going. Uh, it goes back to something I said in the beginning of the show about if it ain't broke, don't fix it. It doesn't even necessarily mean things are really bad, but it could be that things could be even better. You can connect even more, express fantasies or desires that you have or would want in the relationship that have not been expressed in the sexual relationship. And we should make it a regular type of conversation. And as I mentioned before, we have to recognize that if our partner mentions something about the sex life not being what they like, we, we don't need to take that personally. We should expect how would it be possible for me to know exactly what my partner wants in every way. And there's ways we communicate even during sex that might make some of those things more apparent. So not everything's going to be explicitly talked about all the time, but we would be better off making more of it explicit, maybe not during, maybe not even right before. It could be at other times, but finding times to talk about this very important aspect of our relationship. Oftentimes couples will come in and say, finally, they've been unhappy for 10 years in the sexual relationship and the other partner has no idea. They didn't know and they never, the other person didn't bring it up. We don't want to be part of that kind of a relationship where that doesn't happen. Now, the good news is if you talk about your sex life, not only can it improve this important aspect of your relationship, which is very important, 
but also it's another area where if you show to yourselves and show to each other that in our relationship we can handle talking about uncomfortable aspects of the relationship this goes a long way that we've been able to overcome some barriers in this aspect of our relationship that we've been able to talk about a topic that isn't easy to discuss or that I felt like we couldn't discuss before or that I've never been able to discuss in this openly of a way that can be a big big step to then make you realize well if there's other issues I'm sure we can handle those conversations too I'm sure we can bring them up to each other and have a conversation that ends up bringing us closer, but also helps make that issue that we're talking about be better as well. These are all things that can be improved upon, and we should look at every aspect of our relationship, from how you spend your time, to how you communicate, to what you do for fun, to how you spend your time, all of these things, and the sex life, to be parts that are works in progress. You are two different people who are going to have different desires, different wants, different needs, different preferences. And that's one of the challenging aspects of life is how do we balance these two? Some things hopefully will be very aligned. That's part of what maybe made you attracted to each other. You enjoy some similar things. You talk in a way that feels good to both of you. There's lots of things that will be aligned and might not need to change, but there will still, no matter how compatible you are, be differences between you and your partner and we need to expect that so you should also think if we never have to discuss anything that means something's not quite right here because how can we both want exactly the same thing all the time and this is another area where we don't want to avoid the potential conflict or the potential uncomfortable conversations so i know even as i talk about it and i could hear myself saying the word sex over and over again and maybe Ghazala uh, here in the studio her eyes might get a little bit bigger when I talk about a topic that's more sensitive than other topics because it is a little bit different and we are uncomfortable talking about these things but it is important for us to continue to have these conversations and I try to bring them up so we don't keep them taboo we make it okay to talk about and it very much is okay and I hope you will take that opportunity to bring things up with your partner in every aspect, including the sexual relationship. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. A thank you to all the callers and also a big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dalakwi. Have a wonderful day. Mm-hmm.